Everyone, good morning. Want to, uh, as we get uh, back in the Sermon on the Mount here, want to remind you about Jesus' overall announcement, which uh, the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount, are inside. And that announcement, which we've looked at before, we've, we've heard him say this many times in the Gospels, but uh, something like this The time is fulfilled, or the time has come. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. So this announcement of a kingdom, a new government, a new way of being human, a new economy is breaking into the present normal, the present moment. Jesus is saying, it's here with me, it's arriving, and it's breaking in. Now the invitation is to reorient your life and trust this new kingdom. And so the Sermon on the Mount then is, uh, in many ways, what life looks like when this kingdom collides with human life. This, it's what it looks like when that collision happens. And here's the thing. None of this is expected. I don't know if you've had that sense as we've been looking at the Beatitudes again of just like, this is so upside down. No, nobody saw this coming. This is so bizarre, just so unexpected of what this kingdom is like. When we thought God would be more powerful, more dominant, uh, a little hungrier to prove himself, Jesus came. He was more concerned with healing broken bodies, feeding the poor, welcoming children, and befriending the worst. Not really powerful behavior. And when we thought perhaps celebrities would be the right people, or just people with platform and a little prestige, Maybe those would be the right people for God to use. God came and chose fishermen, tax collectors, prostitutes, trained them, believed in them. He made them his first choice. And when we thought that people could be easily categorized like good and bad along the lines of nationality, maybe ethnicity or income or gender or religion, or politics, Jesus kept crossing those lines and begin, began forming community out of all the wrong sorts of people. Whoever your wrong is, is probably in Jesus' community. Uh, one American author put it this way, it would, it would feel like being in a group with a few Black Lives Matter protesters, a couple of blue-collar workers who dig Trump, a couple on welfare, and a rich Republican who thinks you should not wear jeans to church. It's a collision of all kinds of uh, people, very polarized people in this new community, and it only holds because Jesus is there. When we thought God was out to get us, we find out he was out to forgive us. It just nothing is expected when it comes to Jesus and his kingdom. As one author puts it, instead of being like we wanted him to be, he was less religious, less of a warmonger, less sectarian, less like me. And so it is with this unexpected kingdom that keeps subverting our notions of who God is and who we are. And so then we come to the Beatitudes, which we're uh, getting to the end of the eighth Beatitude this Sunday, and we've been in them for a while And as we've said, the Beatitudes are not like a list that Jesus is saying, you're blessed if you do this or become this kind of person, or God's kingdom is for kind of the religious elites. But rather, uh, it's a portrait, as we've said, of what happens when the kingdom collides into a person's life. 
And the qualities that Jesus blesses are not natural human qualities. We don't produce them. Rather, they're produced out of the collision of Jesus' good news into our lives. Uh, And perhaps one of the best ways to get a sense of what the Beatitudes come from the Spanish. Here's the phrase. Who who speaks Spanish? Who can help us out here? Because I'm going to butcher this. I'm willing to embarrass myself for you, but who who can speak Spanish well and with a little... mm. Where? No, he's not volunteering himself. Okay. Who? Come on. Okay. That's, I really appreciate the attempt. Uh, this is good. We're a community of struggle and hope. Um, <laughs> I can only do it because it's Mike. Yes, let's, yeah. Yeah, oh, please. <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah. That's very good. <laughs> uh, and so this is, this is what the Beatitudes are called in Spanish, and it literally means good adventure to you, which is just too perfect. That's a perfect name for the Beatitudes. You know, uh, welcome to the kingdom of God. Good adventure to you. Like, good luck. <laughs> this, this is going to wreck your life. <laughs> it's going to turn it upside down. This is... Uh, this is not normal as you've not known normal. What a great phrase. And so since the Beatitudes are all interrelated, let's hear them one more time here. Uh, let's go. Uh, next slide. Yeah, so I got, I got very helpfully put the page numbers in there for you uh, so you can... Uh, good adventure to you finding it. Okay. Um, Matthew 5, verse 3. If you want to make your way there and, and uh, stick a finger uh, in there, we'll, we'll be there for the morning. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they'll be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they'll inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they'll be shown mercy. And blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven for the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And so we notice here uh, in this eighth beatitude, it comes with a bit of an expansion. Verse 11 and 12. And there's this added weight then at the end of the beatitudes uh, around this theme of persecution. And it it repeats it. And and it it almost kind of crescendos, the the beatitudes crescendo to this last note. And And this might be then the pinnacle of unexpected. That Jesus' vision for human flourishing is to happen in the midst of persecution. 
One author translates it this way, flourishing are you whenever people revile and slander and speak all kinds of evil things against you on account of me. Rejoice and be glad because your reward is great in heaven. In this same way, people slandered the prophets who came before you. And this is a tough text. It's a really hard one to hear. It's a hard one to teach from. Uh, I've wrestled with this one, this tricky one. And uh, in preaching school, they say, don't raise questions you're not going to address in the sermon. And so I'm going to break a bunch of rules because there's just too many questions to raise. This is such a tough text. Like, first of all, what kind of persecution are we talking about, actually? And also, how can we as Vancouverites consider persecution? Does this even apply here? And wouldn't anything that we would list as persecution this morning essentially be first world problems? It's like, oh, that (laughs) cute, soft Vancouverites. Missiologists tell us that at least 25% of the global Christian family is actually underground. Uh, One author, David Barnett, talks about in the 20th century, it works out to about an average of 300,000 uh, Christians um, being martyred for their faith a year. It's estimated that right now over 200 million Christians in 60 countries are denied basic human rights because of their allegiance to Jesus. So how do we even get into this and go, uh, yeah, that, that's talking to my situation. Also, it seems uh, tacky at best to look at the ways the church has been or is being persecuted given the church's history of dulling out its fair share of persecution. That's tacky, uh, kind of rude maybe at best. Uh, shouldn't any discussion of being persecuted come after acknowledging and owning the ways the church has been the persecutor? That would, that would seem appropriate. And how can we even hear this beatitude in the noise of our cultural moment, which seems to be so much about victimization and the persecution complex? So much of our public discourse seems to be about this very thing. Who's persecuted? Who's persecuting who? Finding the oppression. Who's the oppressed? Who's the oppressor? Trying to uh, uh, find all of these what's called microaggressions and, and uh, tally it up and try and uh, tip the scales. How do we even hear this in all of, all of the, the per- persecution complex? And lastly, what is Jesus inviting his followers into here, and how could this be good news for the world? So there's just a few things that I've been wrestling for and uh, don't have clear answers on. So that's just up front as we go into the sermon, uh, and I'll need grace as I give you a very imperfect teaching this morning. Hard text for sure. A couple of quick observations, and uh, we'll get into it. Just, just first to note, if you've still got it open, there, first thing, we get to the eighth beatitude. As, as I've mentioned, it's, it's a double. It's, it's kind of got this expanded portion. Some people say there's nine. Uh, I like to think, I like eight, and that the eighth one has this expansion pack uh, built in. And so for some reason, Jesus repeats or reframes the eighth beatitude Uh, And is it because he knows it's the one we would rather not hear? Is it because it's the one that he perhaps felt the most? I don't know. But note that. It's it's a double. Second, in repeating this beatitude, did you notice the shift in pronouns? It moves from they 
to the very uncomfortable you. No longer is the subject a theoretical they, but to the people he's addressing. So these are words for whoever are listening to Jesus' words when they're first given or on April 22nd? Confirmation now, April 22nd, yes. So a very focused and personal you. Third, Jesus brings himself into the picture for the first time in the Beatitudes. He says, on account of me or because of me. Notice that. He's been there in all the other Beatitudes, but in the eighth Beatitude, he's making it explicit. Uh, It's because of me, and it's as though Jesus is saying, I'm the problem. Get ready. You're going to get in trouble. You're going to find yourselves in some difficulty because of me. Fourth, note the reason for the persecution. This is really, really important for uh, Christians to note. Jesus is not blessing those who get persecuted for being obnoxious. (laughs) Congratulations, you're a jerk and you make people hate you. Well done, yours is the kingdom. No, Jesus is not blessing those who get persecuted for being tactless or dogmatically dogmatic. Jesus is not congratulating the thrill-seeking confrontationalist who like, "I, I love conflict or I have a victim complex. Jesus is blessing those who find themselves in trouble because of what? Because of him, and then he makes it more explicit, because of righteousness. Because of righteousness. So, in order to hear this, we've got to have a bit more con- context. Another teaching of Jesus in, is in John 15. So we've got all these questions hanging in the air, which we may or may not get to, depending on time. But let's get some more context here from uh, Jesus in John 15. Let's go there together. I think, I think I've got the page number helpfully marked out again. Yep, there it is. Good. So on the night before Jesus is handing himself over uh, to death, on the night before he essentially loses uh, and uh, has to surrender his life, uh, he gathers this early band of disciples together. You may know this around a table in the upper room somewhere downtown Jerusalem, and he gives his followers this teaching. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I've chosen you out of the world. And this world language, uh, this term is simply meant human society organizing itself without God. So if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. And he continues, uh, remember that what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. So Jesus is saying, if, if the old order of things, if human society organizing itself without God can't handle the master, it won't actually, it won't be able to handle the master's servants. If the old order of things cannot tolerate the righteous one, uh, it's not going to tolerate those who seek to follow him and reflect his righteousness. And so then the rest of the New Testament tells us that persecution is the norm, one sort uh, or another. And so Paul has to talk to his colleague Timothy, who we know is a bit fearful, a little bit timid, 
And Paul has to be really blunt with him. He says to Timothy, he says, Indeed, all who desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Okay, great. You still with me? Yep, sunshine. Uh, sunny text. It's a hard text. So maybe the next question then is, well, why, is, why is, was Jesus persecuted? Like why, why would anyone want to get rid of a man who heals the sick, who sets free those possessed by evil or uh, caught in systems of oppression, who forgives sinners, who uh, dignifies women, who welcomes the imperfect into his family? Clearly, Jesus is not persecuted for being obnoxious. So why was he, the most beautiful human being who ever lived, why was he persecuted? And there's one word answer, uh, righteousness. Righteousness, especially like the perfect kind, perfect righteousness, is either experienced as a blessing or a threat. If, if you're enjoying being in a dark room, someone hitting the bank of lights uh, is, is not good news. But if you're trying to find something, if you've lost something in a dark room and you can't find the light, someone throws the bank up, well, that's good news. It all depends on whether uh, your, say, your unrighteousness or your darkness is, is something you're wanting to guard. And so since often we don't like to own our own unrighteousness, righteousness is most often experienced as a threat. It doesn't even need to say a word. It just needs to enter the room, be there without speaking a word. The presence of righteousness exposes rottenness. And you can either open up to it or, or you can get rid of it. And so let, we all know this. So let's just say, um, let's say you are a person who's overall committed to health. You, you, uh, you value exercise and eating well and having discipline around these things, just not currently. Just not practically in this moment, um, okay? And I'm, I'm creating an, an abstraction here. I'm not speaking from personal experience. I want that to be noted. So let's, let's just, let's say that's you, okay? You, you, you do like health, just you're eating a calzone, say, in the moment, okay? And you're out for dinner with your friend who... Uh, is extremely extroverted and enthusiastic about how lately even they are surprised to find that they've just been crushing their workouts. <laughs> they're, they're saying, it used to be hard to get to the gym. I don't know what's happened to me. It's like it's not a good day unless I'm there. And they're saying things like, since adjusting my diet, it's so weird. I don't even crave carbs anymore. Um, they continue on, they're saying, since I cut sugar, it's like now having a carrot is almost a treat. And at that point, you're just like, that is, that's enough, okay? Let's just shut this conversation down. Like, I'm currently, I, I, I value what you're talking about, just not currently. And by you talking about you crushing it right now is standing in judgment over my calzone. I, 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 I want to move on. If your life is oriented to health, if you share that pursuit, then you're inspired by this. If your life is not oriented to health, if you do not value those things, then you're, in, you're convicted by this. 
And that's uncomfortable, and this hypothetical person really doesn't like that kind of conversation. And so Jesus gets in trouble. We see this in the Gospels. Why does Jesus get in trouble? Righteousness. And and the interesting thing is, not just righteousness, but that he transgressed other kinds of righteousness, the righteousness of the left and the righteousness of the right. He ticked off people on both ends of the spectrum, with those with religious power and those in secular power. Jesus kept getting in trouble, being persecuted, because he kept including the wrong kind of people. And he kept confronting the hypocrisy, speaking truth to power, uh, particularly in religious contexts. So with Jesus came the kingdom of God. He said, it's at hand, a new way of being human. Righteousness is at hand. It is full of peace and joy and truth. And that starts clashing, clashing, clashing with all kinds of other value systems, all kinds of other righteousness. Uh, I like how this uh, theologian from Bolivia puts it. The coming of the kingdom means a permanent confrontation of worlds. The kingdom is a question mark in the midst of the established ideas and answers developed by people in societies. This is very hard for those of us who are Enneagram 9 to hear. And if you don't know about Enneagram, don't worry. It's just there's guaranteed conflict here with the way of Jesus. I was in Ottawa this past week, and I met uh, Ivan, who owns... uh, a couple of restaurants in Ottawa. And uh, my friend Dave introduced me to Ivan, and Ivan was, was uh, in the restaurant while we were there. And so Ivan came over to our table and told us about his, uh, well, I guess his business model and how he goes about uh, business and why he's gotten in so much trouble. Ivan's uh, extremely concerned about uh, food ethics, sourcing food well, so his prices are higher. Uh, he's particularly uh, um, concerned about equity, and so he wants his dishwashers to make the same as like the front of line staff. And he's very concerned about uh, how women are treated in the restaurant industry, particularly how there's this sense of um, uh, perhaps wearing certain clothes that might help you get a tip by exposing your body the injustice of that, uh, women uh, not getting paid as much as men, and so on. And so he's, he's done a lot to confront this. And one of the things he said that he does is every year he makes all of his uh, male staff wear a dress and high heels for their shift. Um, and he's gotten in trouble for some of this stuff. But he said it's not just, it's not just a hoax. He said he wanted the men to feel the vulnerability of having your body exposed that way, having your feet crammed into high heels, uh, like breaking ankles on stairs. Um, and uh, he said, it really is not a publicity stunt. Anyways, Ivan's got in, in trouble, and he's a bit of an outlier in the Ottawa restaurant scene because he's got a different value system. And so he's ruffling feathers by just his, you could say, his form of righteousness about how he's treating women, then is creating a lot of discomfort for how other restauranteurs are, are treating women. Now, regardless whether or not you think the dressing in dresses and high heels is um, like a good way to go about that, it's just interesting. Notice the clash 
Here, here he is. This is his story in Ottawa. He's like, yeah, there's a clash. There is conflict because I'm living off of a different script than most of the other restaurants, more, the more high-end restaurants in our city. So the conflict is always about righteousness. It just becomes then whose? That's the question. It's always whose. I was reading this book on the plane uh, this week. It's called The Rise of Victimhood Culture, Microaggressions, Safe Spaces, and the New Culture Wars. And these authors note that what we're seeing, particularly in the last five years, is, is really a battle over righteousness. That's not their language, but it's the emergence of a new moral code based around victimhood. And the way victimhood is energized is through determining wrongs and rights, and the power to determine a microaggression has been given to the victim. And so who, who has the most status? Well, a victim does. And this moral vision is very new, and it operates uh, alongside older moral codes, such as like an honor code or dignity code. And so what they're arguing is that what we're seeing in much of our current political and cultural polarization is driven by the clash of this new moral code. What's fueling so much of the discord in our public discourse is a clash over whose righteousness. Whose righteousness? And how do we determine who's right? And who gets to be right? And how do we right wrongs? And so on. There's an old French word that talks about this move that's been around for a long time. I will try to say it. Uh, it's resentiment. And this comes out of psychology and philosophy. Nietzsche warned about this. And uh, resentiment, it's, it's the French version of resentment. But resentiment is, um, is, is talking about something um, much deeper than resentment. Here's a, here's a definition. Grounded in a narrative of injury, or at least perceived injury, a strong belief that one has been or is being wrong. The root of this is the sense of entitlement a group holds. And over time, the perceived injustice becomes central to the person's and the group's identity. That's what resentment is. It's, it's identity formed by injury. So please note, uh, I'm, I want to be very clear here. There are real victims. Of course, there is real, actual injustice. There are legitimate grievances. There's actual oppression in the world. So don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying there's no such thing. But what resentment is, it goes beyond recognizing and even opposing injustice. Resentment is when the community thrives uh, and even needs a sense of being injured. And the group rallies around its identity identity of being wronged, and therefore is righteous in any means it takes up, however violent, to right wrongs. So this, this is the danger of victimization, is that it ultimately leads to violence. And so this is the great challenge, I think, for, for followers of Jesus in North America. Even hearing a text like this, this morning, it is to be co-opted by resentment. To list the ways that the church has been injured. We're in a hard moment because the church has always been center. It's had a lot of power. But as Christendom crumbles, as the church loses influence and pushed to the margin, which, by the way, an Anabaptist view of this is thumbs up. That's where the church has always done best, on the margins. <laughs> but as that shift goes, the church is trembling. 
victim, victim to progressive, secular, post-Christian culture. The temptation to see yourself as part of a persecuted minority that finds its identity in being wrong is dangerous. Why? Because this kind of resentment righteousness is what energizes both the left and the right. It energizes all kinds of violence. It energizes, I've got to win. I've got to take back the culture. So is this the righteousness Jesus is talking about? I don't think it is. And I think as we study the Sermon on the Mount, and this is why we're taking a good amount of time this summer to root ourselves in, I think as we spend some time in the Sermon on the Mount, which is really about Jesus' kind of righteousness, we are going to continue to bump into the unexpected. If I was to summarize uh, what I think Jesus' kind of righteousness is, I'd, I'd say it this way. Cruciform righteousness. It's non-grasping. It appears to be losing. It suffers under rather than powers over. It's so faint. It's weakness. And then mystery of the cross, as Paul writes later, is it's, it's, yeah, it's our weakness, but God's strength is made perfect in it. And so why I'm saying the, the danger... And I think this is the greatest challenge right now for us in North America. It's not some sort of external pressure. I think it's internal. And it's to succumb to resentment. To try and grasp and power over and not be willing to defer and to lose, to suffer under. So I want to share a word here from Hebrews 13. I have no idea if this is going to be a word for anyone other than me. (laughs) But I I felt really strongly this week... uh, to share this. And I, I have no idea how this will land on you all, but let's go and we'll, we'll wrap it up here. By wrap it up, I mean I have two pages of notes left. <laughs> I just don't want to overpromise. Okay. <laughs> so we've got resentment, righteousness, which is at work, which so often um, I, I think co-ops, followers of, or Jesus followers get co-opted by And I think Hebrews 13 shows us a form of cruciform righteousness, which uh, may look at times almost like resentment, but I think there's a subtle difference. So let's look at this passage together. Actually, just just to say, if, if you've read Hebrews, you know that the writer of Hebrews has spent an enormous amount of time looking at the sacrificial system and the temple and how Jesus is this new high priest. So lots of time in Hebrews, about that system. Here we are, Hebrews 13. It's kind of a chaotic chapter. There's all kinds of exhortations that the writer's giving that don't really relate. But then he comes back to this section about the temple. I want to hear these words again. Therefore Jesus also suffered outside the city gate in order to sanctify the people by his blood, by his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp and bear this grace, the disgrace he bore. So the entire Christian story, the way of Jesus, hinges on this. Jesus lets go of his status to go outside the camp and is rejected for our sake. 
He willingly became the despised one, the rejected one, the one on the losing team. That's what we see. And his death, we know, did not occur in the temple, but outside the temple, Golgotha, the place of the skull. Outside the temple, which is a really key geographical piece. He, he is crucified out on the scrap heap. So the righteous one so wants to identify with the unrighteous ones. So where does he go? On the refuse heap? On the outside? To those on the outside looking in? Those rejected by the establishment. So to follow Jesus then is to follow him to those places. Outside the establishment. This is what the text actually calls for. Let us then go to him outside the camp. Outside the gate. That's the call. Go, go out there. Inside versus outside. Inside is to feel secure, to know familiarity, to be insulated from the dangers of outside. That's why we have walls. And Jesus goes outside and actually says, you too, get out there. Step on out. Far enough for you now to be considered an outsider. Far enough that you don't get confused with being an insider. To go a little bit further than your own people are willing to go. And you see that this is the kind of community that Jesus is creating. Those who give up status to go outside the camp. Those bent on pursuing those currently not in the camp. And not only that, but to find Him there. Where's Jesus? Someone might ask. Oh, yeah, He's outside the camp. <laughs> or you might be a person who says, I want to know the presence of God. I want to be so aware of it. I want to be immersive. Where can I go meet God? Yeah, he's outside the camp. You're going to have to go where Jesus is if you want to find him. So to enter into solidarity with God is to enter into solidarity with those who suffer outside the boundaries. There simply is no other way to intimacy with God. If knowing God is your intention, you have to go where God is. And so to follow Jesus at all is to follow him outside the lines, which is very hard, very hard for those who've been in religious establishments for their whole life to come to grips with. Because I thought the game was marking the boundaries, not following Jesus. I thought the game was guarding the institution, not going where he goes. See, if you do that, if you follow Jesus outside of the camp, you will be persecuted. By who? Your own camp. <laughs> to practice the way of Jesus is to practice persecution. To be in sync with the kingdom of God is to be out of sync with the prevailing established systems, whether they're religious or political or familial or conservative or progressive. If you're following Jesus, you're going to get in trouble with pretty much everybody, both on the left and the right. So then my next question is, I direct this to myself, I offer it to you, who are you willing to disappoint? If I'm going to disappoint someone, if I will be persecuted, if following Jesus means crossing over lines, 
Who am I willing to disappoint? I like how one of my heroes, the most gentle man ever, Jean Vanier, said, we all have to choose between two ways of being crazy, the foolishness of the gospel and the nonsense of the world. What kind of crazy are you into? (laughs) When you live in allegiance to the righteousness of Christ, you will violate the righteousness of someone else. You just will. So what kind of righteousness, what kind of crazy, what kind of foolishness are you willing to give allegiance to? And you may say, yeah, but you know what? My camp or our gate, like the limits, the edges of our camp were set there by God himself. God doesn't go beyond God's limits. Well, read the text a little closer. God set the boundaries of the temple like with immaculate precision, measurements of how he wanted it built. God said, he promised, I'll be in here. You can find me here. I want all nations to come find me here. And then God went out there in Christ. What is he doing? He went out there. Why? Uh, For us. Because God decided we were worth it. This is a really troubling word. Because we each have communities and families and workplaces. Maybe theological um, paradigms and heritages. We've all got tribes. And there are all manner of different gates and different definitions of what it means to be outside the camp. And you may, in this moment, be wondering, what does it mean, then, to say God is found outside the gate of my community? And it may be what you're most afraid it means. So we're invited to find Jesus outside of the camp and, as the text says, to bear the stigma he bore. Another translation says, to bear the abuse he endured or to bearing the disgrace he bore. And this is where righteousness comes into focus. This is cruciform righteousness. This is an invitation into suffering for the sake of reconciled relationship. If you want to know what Jesus' righteousness looks like, we look to the cross. The righteousness of Jesus is co-suffering for the sake of reconciled relationship. And because Jesus suffered outside the gate, what he's looking for is people to move out from the camp of security and familiarity and ease and be willing to bear reproach with him on the Calvary Road. The reproach of your peers, perhaps your parents, perhaps your favorite authors who don't even know you, so it doesn't matter. To be so out of sync, to be so uncool, to co-suffer for the sake of reconciled relationship. I'm I'm not sure what you're hearing as I'm saying this. I'm not sure what this will mean for us as a church as we follow Jesus outside the gate, outside the camp. What? For reconciled relationship. 
But one last question. Who is Jesus inviting you to stand outside with? Church, if what we are about, if what we are seeking to preserve is anything but risk-taking for the sake of reconciled relationship, co-suffering to do so, then we're missing it. That's what we exist for, to suffer with Jesus for the sake of reconciled relationship. Who knows where that's going to lead us? But Jesus promise us, blessed are you when you're persecuted for righteousness' sake. We're going to find out, I think, what that means, what it means to be blessed. So we come to the table, which every week reminds us of uh, that this is where the way of Jesus leads. Always appears to be brokenness, to be an ending, to be death. But when that is submitted to Christ, it becomes resurrection, it becomes food for other people, it becomes a place of reconciliation. And so let's rehearse the story that we're a part of as we come to the table this morning and um, invite you to pray where indicated in the bowl. The gospel is the good news that God our Father, the Creator, out of His great love for us, has come to rescue us from sin and death and to renew all things through the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. This is for God's great glory and our profound joy. We acknowledge God as our creator and give him thanks.